December 12, 2010, lecture discussion number 27 on the book of Romans. And how are we doing back there? Really quickly, do we have the uh, CD and everything operating? Okay, just to say uh, uh, hello to the people who find us on Sermon Audio and who find us on podbean.com and iTunes. And we're grateful that you folks are listening to us. And we know, as we say here, that you outnumber us, oh golly. Uh, 10 or 20 to 1, and um, we are without a doubt the smallest church on iTunes. There is no one smaller than us, and um, we are grateful for all of you who have found us all over the world. So those are the three places, and two of them have pretty much the same sermons, but uh, Sermon Audio has a lot of the older ones now, or 12 of the older ones. When I say older, how far back have we gone so far? Okay, just a year or so ago. Uh, obviously, I go back 20 years almost now. Anyway, when we last uh, left off our heroes, and that would be us, by the way, we were meandering through Romans chapter 3, and we finished up the parable of the denarius, or the parable of the workers in the vineyard. I like to say denarius because I think that is more correct. And afterwards, we encountered, I wrote, and, or I mean, I'm sorry, I read as carefully as I could with as much... Uh, solemn awe, I would say, the extraordinary, profound words of David, mostly David, also Solomon and Isaiah. Last week, that's what we did. And the Holy Spirit inspired David and Solomon and Isaiah to place these words that I ended up with last week in the Old Testament and likewise inspired Paul to quote them at Romans 3.10 through 18. It is not an accident that Paul went through the Old Testament and pulled those verses and words out. They had great significance to Paul just as they did to David, just as they did to Solomon, just as they did to Isaiah. Let me repeat them for you really fast. Again, just some of them, mostly 10 through 12 or Romans 3. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. No, not one. Paul wanted to make sure, Holy Spirit through Paul wanted to make sure that we understand that. After Romans 1.17, which you know is also Habakkuk or Habakkuk 2.4, which is the just shall live by faith, faith, I'm sorry, the just shall live by faith, is this no, not one in the book of Romans. They're pretty much right almost back to back. And if you're going to know something, if you're going to know something other than the just shall live by faith, if you came up to me and I asked you, have you ever studied the Romans or book of Romans, and you said to me, the just shall live by faith, and no, not one, I'd go, wow, good for you. You're in pretty good shape. You're doing really good. That's what needs to be memorized if you're going to memorize those two. And and let me just pull it out for you really uh, in a way that uh, I think really is helpful. It's the none, 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 all together, no, not one. 
You'll notice it starts with no, not one, and ends with no, not one, those verses. And that's extremely important to recognize, and we'll work our way through it as time goes along. Understanding Romans 3, 9 through 20 is extremely important. It's extremely important. It will keep you from what I call, as politely as I can, damnable heresy. If you understand the just shall live by faith and know not one, none seek after God, know not one, you will stay away from damnable heresies. It will keep you from falling prey to who? Who's after you? That's right. The people in the big purple chairs with the pink hair. That's who's after you. They think you're stupid. And they think they could take your money by telling you things where they have control of you. As soon as they get control of you or get you to cry or get you to fall down on the ground, there goes your wallet. It's been around a long time, and it's particularly out there today. So knowing Romans 3, 9 through 20, that's armor. That's a, a, a 9 millimeter, if you will. Sorry. Not really. Now that's a weapon against the profanity that is human-earned or human-based salvation systems. And so you need to know this and have it ready, especially for your kids to know. Because kids are always sucked in to these kinds of places that profit on control-based or human-based salvation or human-earned or works, if you will. Okay? We should expect, then, Romans 3, 9 through 20 to be alongside and subsequent to that great truth of Romans 1.17. I'm going to change it. This is my paraphrase of 1.17. The just shall live by faith. I'm going to say it again this way. This is my way of saying it. I think it is absolutely accurate. You can argue with me later. Bring a lunch. Here's what I think you can say as Romans 1.17. The saved have eternal life by grace through belief in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay? That out of the way, how do we approach this Romans 3, 9 through 20? How are we doing? Well, obviously it's what? It's Old Testament. So, we need to find out where it's from. And then we need to find out who was used by God to write it. And then we need to find out under what conditions, what context were these words written by the person who wrote them? In other words, what are we doing? Why were they written? When were they written? What happened to make them written? And who wrote them, right? And those of you who have read ahead, <laughs> thank you for laughing. Okay, Last week we had somebody that read ahead. Yes, we did. We have the new teacher's pet. Yes, we do. We won't identify him. But his initials are Steve Swanson. Anyway, Steve read ahead and he came to me and said, I will read ahead if you will tell me. And I'm so proud of him and embarrassed for him simultaneously. Okay, but no, I'm only half kidding about that. <laughs> but if you're reading ahead, you have maybe already discovered something. Uh, you may have already discovered that Psalm 53 is most of the source 
of Romans 3, 10 through 12, if not all of it. And that is greatly significant. Once you know that Psalm 53 is the source of Romans 3, 10 through 12, then something very exciting comes for you. Now you know that Psalm 53 is absolutely identical to Psalm 14. Okay, not perfectly identical. Verse 5 is a little bit different, but they are essentially the same. Now we have an obvious question. Why did David write Psalm 14 and then repeat it at Psalm 53 with just a slight difference. What made him do that? So that uh, falls in line with the proclamation of Cyrus as well. And it's very important to know when, when the Bible, when the Holy Spirit, when an author inspired by God to write Scripture repeats it in two different places, there is a profound reason why. We'll have to know. What event in his life would make him do this? Psalm 53 is essentially, is mostly, is considered by almost every scholar to be a confession, a written confession. Something that David wanted everyone to know. He confessed, and he confessed to a crime, by the way. I submit that this confession is the result of the events of 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12. And that was the murder of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. An act of great treachery, one that makes the reader ask what kind of person could do this, because it is profoundly wicked and evil and black and dark and cold-blooded. Premeditated, planned, sinister. And a man does something like this. King David. That's who did it. The shepherd king. Great type of Christ. Is a cold-blooded killer. Who does things such as this? And certainly, I often say this, God cannot, can he? Will not, will he? Use a man who would do this and be this vile and be this ugly. Such a stench is on David. Surely God will reject somebody with such a stench, right? No. We talked about that last week. Who does he have? Who does God have to choose from? He has stinking slime. And that's you and me. That's us. That is the point of no, not one seeks after God. No, not one is righteous. No, not one is good. Where, though, you might ask, is the justice in forgiving such a vicious, sinful act? And I also want you to remember again that Paul was what? Who's Paul? He, he takes this confession of David and puts it into the middle of Romans where he is trying to prove that the just, the justified, the saved, the people who have eternal life are saved by grace through faith in the blood sacrifice of Christ. That's what he's doing with it. And remember that Paul is who? He saw the what? The Pharisees. What did he do? Butchered people. Hundreds of them. He's a mass killer. He sought to exterminate Jewish believers who proclaimed the very saving grace that he is now 
arguing. And also remember that God himself declares David to be what? A man after my own heart. A man after God's heart, 1 Samuel 13, 14. How can David, a cold-blooded, remorseless betrayer, be described as a man after God's own heart? That's one of the key questions here. And there's much to figure out and much to try and figure out. And as you might guess, much is hidden as you would expect here in this murder of Uriah and the parable of Nathan. The parable of Nathan is almost always forgotten when we are looking at the murder of Uriah. And I like to make people look at it as it is a crime. There's two crimes here. And oh, immediately, as soon as I do this, you should be thinking, okay? People on the internet didn't know what hand gesture I made. Please do not think inappropriately. But I held up two fingers. There's two crimes here. And man, as soon as you see that, you begin to start to put it together, I hope. Nathan, the parable of Nathan, is a solution to the murder, if you will, to the two crimes. But it's also a prophecy for the house of David. And then along with all of that, we're going to have to look at 51 Psalms, 52 Psalms, and 53 of Psalms. Why did David put them in that order? How was he inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so? What is his plan? What is he confessing to? How do they all fit together? So, that's where we're headed. And just to say uh, quickly, the mystery of the parable of Nathan, all by itself, is a year's work. It's a full dump truck load. And you add to that the murder of Uriah, uh, and um, I'm leaving out one of the other crime purposely, but you add to that Nathan and Uriah together, uh, there's no way we can do it in less than six months. And I'm going to do it in two or three Sundays. So how, how good a job am I going to do? I'm going to do a horrible job. But that we don't have time to stick with it. It is a very, very... Sad, 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 true story of great destruction. But it's also, needless to say, a huge pile of treasure here. A huge pile. Um, I hear people talk to me about this uh, passage in Scripture all the time, these chapters. It comes up a lot, and almost every time I hear it, it is absolutely, totally wrong. So the chances that you have it totally wrong are pretty strong. And let's see. Okay, how do we approach it? What most people call David and Bathsheba, but I don't like that. I think that's wrong. It should be called the honor of Uriah the Hittite, a mighty man. He's a mighty man. Anyway, what do we, how do we take on this Old Testament scripture? What do we do first? You've got to figure it out. What do you do first? What's your plan? How are you going to approach it? How do you approach it? Talk to me. Huh? First mention is a really good idea. So you would go back to the first murder? Where's the first murder? What? Nope. Ask your husband. What did he say? Not supposed to talk. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, he's right about that. Never be aggressive here. Um, what do we do first? We search for Jesus Christ. We find Christ. It testifies of him. John 5.39. You have an Old Testament scripture. You will not figure it out correctly unless you figure out where Christ is in there. Because the whole purpose of the Old Testament is to testify, is to be a prophecy of, is to be revelatory, is to reveal and give us the person and the redemptive work of Christ. So if you don't start there, always, always, always begin looking for Christ. Find Him. The Scripture will be revealed. The wisdom of it will be there always if you start with rule number one, which is Jesus Christ is God Himself in the flesh, always God, never not God. And somehow this Old Testament teaches us that. So how do I find it? If you do that with rule number one, you'll be fine. To do otherwise, you're going to have error and failure. Okay, here we go. Open up. Get your textbooks. If you need a Bible, there was a barrel of them there somewhere. Should be a pile of them. If you need one, uh, yell at John. He will go get you one. Okay? So, we're going to go to 2 Samuel 11. Go to 2 Samuel 11. We're going to read the whole thing. You can't get out of it. you got to read the whole thing. You want to think of it this way as a two-part CSI, if you will. Then maybe that'll make you do it. Because that's what we got here. We have a very difficult mystery to solve. Lots of clues. Easy to make a mistake and draw the wrong conclusion. So I want you to read it, and I want you to open up and follow along. It doesn't do me any good to read it to you, though I will, because that's my goal here. If for nothing else, if I do nothing else on all these sermons but read Scripture, I have succeeded. My commentary is generally worthless. The Scripture is always profitable. And you may think you know this story, but like I said, I doubt it. You probably have a cursory or shallow view of it that you got from some Sunday school class many years ago. And there is a lot hidden here, a lot, and it is rarely found. So let us be among those who search and find. And how are we going to be ones that search and find? We're going to be looking for Christ. So let's read along 2 Samuel uh, 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year. Holy we can stop right there. That's very important, detectives. What did you just learn? What did you just? What we, how are we starting out here? We just got an idea about when it happened, when the crime occurred. Okay, it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle. That David sent Joab. Wow. There's 15 questions there. Give me one before I go on. Who's Joab's a great question. Got to know who he is. Give me another question. Who are they fighting? That's a great question. Why are they fighting him? Give me another question. Yeah, what time what time is this battle occurring? Give me another question. Yes. Yes, why didn't he go? He sent somebody to fight what? His battle's for him. Who does that? 
Why would he do that? He should have had an alibi, shouldn't he? Not me. I didn't do it. I'm out fighting like I'm supposed to be. I'm the mighty King David. Fight, fight, fight. Sis, boom, ba. I have so many cheerleaders. R-E-R-E-B. Peel Your Banana was my favorite. Never mind. Anyway. Why isn't he out fighting? Very good question. Let's keep going. I'll stop doing that because we'll never get through it if I do. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab. Why did he send Joab? Of all the people he could have sent, he sends Joab. Why? And his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David, notice it says, but David remained at Jerusalem. Obvious question that came from the left from the brilliant young lady is why did he remain in Jerusalem? He's the king. He is the warrior king. He is the great David, mighty fighter, leader of men. And it's the time that kings go out to fight. And this is a king and he ain't fighting. So why? What's his plan? Then it happened. It happened. That's the second time I've got it happened, right? One evening, the David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And I've been what in my life? I hate to admit it. A roofer. Also a foundation guy. And it is with great shame that I admit that I've been a foundation guy. I warned my son, never be a foundation guy. Did it work? No. No, it didn't. It happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba? Now, I hope the questions are just pouring out of you now. You have to come into this, if you will, as a criminologist, as a detective. And you got your little notebook. And you got to know something. you got to know who's doing what. The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. Bunch of questions. Hope you're asking them. And she returned to her house. Now, that's really interesting. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I with child. Then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. I have a problem. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing, how the war prospered. 
Bunch of nonsense, isn't it? Does he care about any of that? Yeah. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of, from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. By the way, how powerful a man is Uriah? Very powerful. How many, how, what, what rank does he have? A very high rank. How wealthy is he? He is very wealthy. Does he travel alone through a battlefield? How many people came with him? So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, I want you to think of the anatomy and the steps of this. we got to have a bunch of meetings. We're constantly on the phone with text messaging. Okay, we're not. we got to have meetings all the time because we got to talk to Uriah face to face. David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives. What a great theologian this Uriah is. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next now, when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the fiercest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So Uriah has a letter that tells his commander, now let me put it this way, this is equivalent, I would say, to a, at least a two-star general in today, and he's going to hand his letter to a four-star general, and I'm going to put a two-star in the middle of a big fight, a heated hand-to-hand -hand fight, and then I'm going to retreat from him and let him be slain. Not just him, who else is with him? That's David's plan. How interesting is that? So it was while Joab besieged the city. What is David counting on there, by the way? He gave the letter to Uriah. What's he counting on? And Uriah's not going to read it. And that's very important. And not only that, he's, he's deciding that Joab is not going to read it too. Uriah. And you have to ask yourself, why didn't Uriah read it? 
And why didn't Joab read it to Uriah? So it was, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men, or fierce fighters, if you will, where the enemy was particularly powerful. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king... If it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubaseth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of, of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in the, in the Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say. Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. So in other words, Joab did what he said to do in the letter. But Joab didn't do it exactly as David wanted. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Really? Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants. Well, the obvious question would be, why did you drive them back to where the archers could get you? What kind of idiot military idea is that? And some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing... How many times have we said this thing so far? Do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. And here's the most powerful verse in all of this. But the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Yours might have displeased, but the correct literal translation was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, there you go. Let's ask these obvious questions, see if we can figure some of this out. I hope I did it justice. It was an extraordinary, treacherous, vicious act of murder. It's the time, as we said, that kings go out to battle. But David stays in Jerusalem. Why is he staying? Talk to me. Why is he staying? You know why he's staying, don't you? Yes, right. He's got a plan. He's been on that roof before. He knows something. Maybe it's not on that roof, but he knows something. And he has a plan. How long has he been planning this? 
When did he decide, I'm going to stay in Jerusalem? David sent Joab and his servants. Why did David send Joab? Who are the servants of Joab? Very important to know that. Notice that David arises from his bed. What's the obvious question? Let me read that for you again. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed. What's the obvious question? What time is it? Absolutely correct. What time is it? What time is he arising from his bed? Now, we're in Hebrew time, and I was going to put all of this on the board as I I said it, but I'm not going to have time. As I went through it, I realized I'm going to go too, too slow. It's afternoon. It's between 12 and 6. That we know. We know that he arose from his dead. Arose from his dead. We arose from his bed sometime between 12 and 6. So he probably has had a nap, his post-meal nap. But we have to know exactly, if we can, what time it is. And like I said, I've been a roofer and a foundation man. The one thing you can do in a foundation when you dig the hole is you make sure that there's nothing moving down there. It's still air, and you're in this hole. And even in Alaska, it gets breathtakingly hot, and you are suffering in that foundation hole. You can imagine what it's like in the Middle East. We roofed this summer. You get on that roof, we got black asphalt shingles. It's hot. On roofs. Now, what's it like? And that's Alaska. What's it like in California, Mexico, the Middle East? How hot is that roof? It's in the spring. We're talking April and May. How hot's that roof? What time is he walking out there? He walking out there in the heat of the day? First question you ask him is, "Oh, what time did you get up? What time are you walking on that roof?" Establish the timeline. That's your one of the first things you should do as an investigator. So what time do you think it is? You think of that yourself. But in any event, he's on his palace roof and he sees a woman bathing a very beautiful woman. Really. He sees a woman bathing. That's for sure. Now, to the naturally cynical and suspicious, and that would be me, and I hope that becomes you after a while, because my goal is to make you cynical, suspicious, uh, and maybe a little bitter. Just a little. I'm kidding about that part. Maybe not. But I want you to be cynical and suspicious. I ran into a man many years ago that said the perfect human being is a cynical, suspicious, sarcastic Christian. And that's perfection. But anyway, I'm not buying much of this. I'm buying this. Don't get me wrong. I believe all of it happened exactly as it was written. I just am seeing a very carefully thought out plan here. Premeditation. There's too much coincidence. I just happen to be on a hot roof in the evening of the day and I see a woman. Oh yeah, you did, baby. I'm not buying that. You knew she would be there, or you knew who she was, and you knew what you were going to do, and you didn't go to battle, and you let everybody else go, and you made sure Uriah went, and you stayed behind, because you had a plan. You've been thinking about it a long, long time. 
David stays in Jerusalem, sends Joab. Uriah, as I said, is one of his high-ranking, mighty men. One of the servants of Joab is one of the, is these men that used to surround David. They were the best of the best. If you want to think Navy SEALs are now a little bit older, that's what you got. You have some of the most powerful fighters that have ever been. That's who these guys are. They're the servant of Joab. Uriah is one of the mighty men of David. He's in the registrar of mighty men. And do you think he knows David? Absolutely he knows David. They all know each other. They all know each other very well. How old is David right now? Give me an age. I have pity. How old is the woman? That's approximately the case. Bathsheba. She is the daughter of Eliam, who is one of the mighty men of David. How old is she? Maybe 20. I got 50, 20 going on here. Eliam, as I said, is another of David's select mighty men. He and Uriah fought side by side with David and for David. They were instrumental in helping David become king. They know David upside down and backwards. And they know each other. This is Eliam's daughter. And she's Uriah's wife. And she is the next door neighbor to David's palace. How powerful is Uriah in this community? And Eliam is the father of this very beautiful bathing woman Bathsheba. And he is a friend of Uriah. So, everybody knows everybody. I said all of that just to get you here. Everyone knows everyone so far in this story. And they all know each other very well. David knows Joab. Joab knows David. Eliam knows David and Joab. Uriah knows Eliam, Joab, and David. And everybody seems to know Bathsheba. The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. There are no surprises for anybody. Okay? So, more obvious questions. If I'm correct to be suspicious of a 50-year-old man who shirks his clear duty, his honor, and stays in Jerusalem and is found crawling around on his roof at 4 or 5 o'clock in the evening. And if I'm correct to be suspicious, then I need to look at all of this, especially this inquiry of David, this dubious question. Or let me put it in a more obvious form, obvious question form. How can... And the other day I said the most obvious of the obvious questions. I kind of just threw that out there. I'm very proud of that. I think this is the most obvious of the, of the obvious questions. How can David tell this is a beautiful woman? How far away is she? What's the line of sight? She's on a rooftop, he's on a rooftop. What time is it? What have we decided? How many of you think it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon? How hot's that roof? By the way, David goes up on the roof. He's the king of Israel. Is he by himself? Obama get a cigarette without the Secret Service? Not happening. Not happening. So, how many people are with David here? I'm the king of a nation. 
the anointed of Israel. God anointed him. So he's up on a rooftop. How high is his rooftop? How high is the other rooftop? How far apart are they? What time of day is it? How far can I see? Is it a cloudy day? Is it a sunny day? Everything going good? It's springtime. When does the sun go down in springtime in the Middle East? This guy, 50-year-old guy crawling around on his roof. What's he got? A spotting scope? Night vision? Goggles? What's going on here? I got to know. I got to know. Can you see her? How much can you see? Where is she? What's she doing? What is she doing? What's she doing? Why is she bathing? She need a bath. Is it Saturday night? We take a bath on Saturday no matter what. Why is she bathing? She's bathing for a specific reason. What is it? No, we have ceremonial impurity. She's unclean. Why is she unclean? Yell it out. Yeah, there's a period uh, that... uh, I guess I couldn't say it any better than that, could I? She's unclean. There's a time of the month that she is unclean. And she has to go through purification. And David knows it. He's keeping really good track. But again, how far away is she? Whose roof is higher than her roof? And when you get to the parable of Nathan, because that comes next, Nathan is a solution to this. Whatever decision you make about this, it has to fit with what Nathan says happened. If you have an idea that this is what happened, you've got to make it line up with Nathan, because Nathan is right, and you may not be. Okay? So hopefully when we get to the parable of Nathan, you'll understand why all of this is important that I've gone through so far. So again, I submit that David can't really see for certain who it is. But he already knows things. He already knows stuff before he even gets on the roof. He's been planning to get on the roof for a long time. He's been on the roof before. He knows exactly what he's doing because he's thought it all through and he's done some of it before. He knows the exact time. He already knows she's very beautiful. He's had a much better look. He can't, every time Uriah comes into the kingdom, he's going to bring his daughter, I'm sorry, his wife. And David has been waiting for spring, and he's had this plan, as I said, for quite a while. And he confirms that the bathing woman is Bathsheba, because he asks, he says, uh, sent and inquired, who is this woman? He knows very well who it is. Why did he do that? And he confirms that the bathing woman is Bathsheba. Her purity ritual is complete, and he takes her. He sends messengers at the late evening, and he takes her. What's the obvious question now? How many does it take to get her? He knows she's not defended. Uriah got any servants he left behind? Messengers from the king come, and they take his wife. Did she resist? When you do a purification cleansing, how you do it? Got to know that, don't we? We know exactly what she did and how she did it. We know that she's about, she's at least 20 years older, we think so, and we don't believe that she's much younger than that, but we know she's had no children. 
Now, whenever I read this passage, I'm struck by the repeating theme that I see. And every time I see one of these, I've got to compare what's happening here to other places where similar things have happened. I have a powerful king, a powerful uh, uh, monarch, if you will. I have somebody in the royalty, royal family. In this case, it happens to be the king. And this person seizes a, seizes a young woman that he sees out in his area for the purposes of sexual intimacy, forced or not. Does that remind you of any place in the Bible? Yes, you may ask the question. Very good question. Why doesn't he time this better? Did you hear that? Why doesn't he know uh, basic human physiology? And he does. Very smart guy. He waits for her to be done with something. Why does he do that? We'll have to deal with that. I know some of these are uncomfortable for you, and I'd figure that uncomfortable question and come out of the front row. That's why they sit in the front row. Anyway, I have a powerful royal figure that seizes a young woman that he sees out of his area, out in his area, I'm sorry, and it reminds me of the Dinah incident of Genesis 34, and more on that comparison later. Anyway, to recap the facts, a young woman is bathing in the evening, at least in the afternoon, and a plot to take her has been formed. It's now executed once her identity is established. And I want you to notice verse 4 really well. David sent and took and she came and he lay with her for she was cleansed and she returned to her house. I broke it down a little bit. Notice she returned to her house. It didn't say they took her back to her house, does it? She returned. So my obvious question is what? Did she go by herself? She definitely didn't come by herself. Did she go back by herself? And she returned to her house. It's important to keep at the forefront the, vi- the final verse of chapter 11. The thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The thing was evil. The whole thing was evil. The thing that David had done was evil. Who's missing in all of that, by the way? Bathsheba is missing. God did not say the thing that God, that Bathsheba and David did, or the thing that David and Bathsheba did is evil. He singled out David. I am proposing, counter to the popular teaching, that Bathsheba is not a sign fault here. She is not assigned blame by Scripture. In fact, what's what's happens to her? She's honored in Scripture. Who's her son? Eventually, Solomon, the heir to the throne, the wisest human being that ever lived, and the richest human being that ever lived, the man who knew the most of any other human being post-fall, after Adam. Can't count Christ. Why? He's God. Solomon. And I know that's counter to popular teaching, but I tell you, the facts are the facts. The evidence is the evidence. In fact, she is called by Nathan a little 
ewe lamb. A childlike lamb. A lamb that is brought into a family and cared for, but is very young, very tender, very innocent. That is what the prophet Nathan calls her. And he is the heaven-sent man. Now find Christ. The heaven-sent man calls Bathsheba a little ewe lamb. That's the type of Christ saying that. Also, I have, as you know, I have Amnon's rape of Tamar coming up right behind this, because you've read ahead and got it all in the context. Amnon takes his half-sister and rapes her and destroys her. And he's murdered for it. It is one of the fourfold destruction prophecy of David's household. And David doesn't act when his son rapes his half-sister. Doesn't act. Why wouldn't he act? Why wouldn't he have stopped it? Why wouldn't he have brought justice? Why wouldn't he have done something? He's got a son that rapes an innocent girl. Doesn't do anything about it. Why not? Same sin, baby. Same sin. My point is, is that Bathsheba, just like Dinah, was taken by force in all probability. She is not this woman up on the... this. The seductress. There is no evidence in Scripture that says she is. How many of you have heard otherwise? Okay, put your case together. Come see me next week. Bring a lunch. This, the remaining facts of all of this, when we get through with Nathan, I think bear out my position. David's darkened mind Uriah's response to it, because Uriah is not fooled, by the way. Uriah knows why he got summoned. He knows what happened before he even started the trip back. I'll prove that to you, I hope, next week. David's darkened mind, Uriah's response. Now, what an incredible thing he says. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. That's what he says. This was a rape and a murder with many accomplices, many co-conspirators, lots of witnesses, lots of people know this stuff. Messengers know it. Joab figured it out, obviously. The people who were in the fight figured it out. Everybody knew everything. We all know something now. How many blackmailers do I have? I got a boatload of blackmailers. And yes, the musicians think I'm ending soon. What are the chances that I am? Not good. Not good at all. I got, oh my goodness, two pages. Pretty soon the musicians will all come back out and sit in the front row. No, they will play cards in my brother's office. What they will do. But they are really hoping. And it didn't pay off for them today. And every now and then I have to kind of go on and on and on to chastise them. Lest they get more aggressive. <laughs> My point is, again, that Bathsheba taken by force. When we put David's darkened mind and Uriah's response and Joab's response and David's message, and this was a rape and a murder, and I have blackmailers everywhere, and it renders King David, the man after God's own heart, destroyed without honor, deserving of execution. He should have been executed for this. Should have been. All around him knew it. All around him began to hold him in contempt. 
all around him begin to disrespect him. And he begins to unravel as a human being. And you'll see that go. He had successfully hidden it, though, from most of the people of Israel, all of the people of Israel. But Joab knew, his inner staff knew, Bathsheba, of course, knew, and Uriah knew. And as I said, Uriah knew from the very instant he was summoned. I can guarantee you that he and Joab would have discussed it. They would never even have left without saying, why is this guy staying behind? Keep the tape rolling for me, please. Don't shut it off. Why did David not come? They would have discussed that. Certainly Uriah and all the mighty men would have wondered why David had not come to his place in the battlefield. Why did he remain in Jerusalem? What a dishonoring thing that he did. And the discussion they would have would be intense. Why isn't David here? And now Uriah is summoned and people are smart enough. Well, you're smart enough to figure it out. You know they were. No one's fooled and Uriah certainly is not deceived. Okay? I keep saying Uriah is not deceived for a reason. Uriah would not participate in David's heinous sin. Uriah not deceived. And he would not participate in David's heinous sin. Where am I headed? And what's David left with now? David's made one decision, that is to rape Bathsheba. What's he got to do now? He's got to make another decision. What's that decision? To murder or not to murder. See, he's got two decisions, doesn't he? How many decisions he got? Two decisions. Where are we in the Bible now? Where are we? Had two decisions. First one, to rape or not rape. And he chooses to rape. Now he's made that decision. We got a lot of problems. He's got Uriah not fooled. Uriah's not going to participate. Uriah's not going to bail him out. We got lots of problems now. I got a mighty man, an honorable man. I got a major military figure. And he ain't going to bail me out i got to make another decision, don't I? The second decision. First decision, rape the wife. Take her by force. Second decision, murder Uriah. Two decisions. I would expect David to have two decisions, wouldn't you? I would expect that. The first decision is adultery. The second decision is murder. Remind you of anything? Can you put that together? Next week, we will keep going. Let's rise and be dismissed.